effectively uh, to, to serve us uh, this morning. We all know that Andrew is uh, just a real gift from God to the church. He's such a gifted Bible teacher. And to just say this morning that the elders are standing with him um, as he, he serves us uh, on this particular subject. So let's welcome Andrew with a, with a great round of applause as he comes up. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Great, yeah, so I'm really excited today to talk about marriage. Marriage is such an important thing to think about, and we're going to ask two questions about marriage today. We're going to ask the what question and the why question. What is marriage, and why is marriage what it is, in a sense? How do we explain why that is the case? And that's a vitally important question to ask and to understand, because marriage is a gift. And if you don't understand what a gift is when you're giving it, you don't know how to use it rightly, and you end up using it wrongly, it doesn't work, you might end up breaking it. If you've been giving a gift a few weeks ago at Christmas, and you kind of open it up, maybe it's some new fancy gadget, and you don't really know what it's for, you don't know what it is, and so you try various different things, there are no instructions, you're going to end up doing some damage, maybe breaking the gift. You've got to understand it to be able to use it rightly. And the same is true of marriage. Our view of what marriage is, how we answer that question, will hugely affect how we live it out and how we interact with it. And if we were to kind of get out of the world today and ask people, well, what is marriage? And you get all sorts of answers. And in media and all sorts of things, you see a huge range of answers. And we could almost put those answers on a bit of a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, there's what I kind of call the Disney view of marriage. The happily ever after, you find your soulmate, you find someone you feel such strong feelings for, you're sure those feelings will last the rest of your lives together, and so you commit to having those feelings with them forever. The Disney happily ever after soulmate view of marriage. On the other end of the spectrum, there's the kind of piece of paper view of marriage. That kind of says, well, actually, marriage is just a bit unnecessary. Why do you need to solidify anything by having marriage? It's just a piece of paper. It makes no real difference. And some people say, well, actually, you look at people getting divorced, and it's so painful and expensive. They say, well, why bother getting married, married and risk having to go through a divorce if it doesn't work out? And that seems to be a view that's on the rise. Last year, there was a survey of 18 to 24-year-olds in this nation, and 24% of them said they thought marriage should be like a mobile phone contract, where you opt in for three, five, ten years, whatever, and there should be a renewal date. So after the three or five or ten-year point, you get to choose whether or not you continue in the marriage or you opt out. It's just a piece of paper. Why wouldn't it be like that, they say? And it also seems to be affecting the rate of marriage, so the number of people getting married each year. There's been a steady decline in the rates of marriage in the last 40 years in this nation. Back in 1975, out of every 1,000 single people in the UK, 64 of them got married. A few years ago, in 2015, that uh, number had dropped from 64 to 21, just 21 out of every 1,000. And in every age group, apart from the over 65s, there's been a radical decline in the rate of marriage in the last 40 years. In my age group, it's been incredibly, incredibly steep. And one of the reasons for that is the view that says marriage is just a piece of paper. Kind of, why would you bother doing it? And so the answer to the question, what is marriage, is really important. It's really important because it affects how we approach and how we live out marriage. It's really important because it's literally changing the shape of the society that we live in. And so as Christians, we need to ask, what does the Bible say? What does God's word say about what marriage is? And I just want to highlight first, this is a message today which is relevant to every single one of us. It's relevant to you if you're here today and you're married, because understanding what marriage is, why is that, will help you to live out your marriage. 
It's really important if you're here and you're single and you're interested in one day being married. Because how you think of marriage will affect how you approach it. To approach marriage well, you need to understand what it actually is. But marriage is also really important to think about if you're somewhere here today and you're single and you have no intention of getting married. Or maybe you're in a situation like mine and you're single and there's a very small chance that it's unlikely that you're going to get married. It's still important we understand what marriage is because if we're going to love and care for other people who are married, as we're called to as church family, we need to understand something of what life is like for them. And it's important for every single one of us because in marriage, we see something of the beauty of God's plan for us, as we're going to see today. Marriage and human sexuality, God's teaching on it, is a beautiful thing designed to point us to him. It's good news and it's important for every single one of us. I just want to start also by recommending to you a book. I read this book over Christmas and it is exceptionally, exceptionally good. It's by Tim Keller and his wife Kathy Keller. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. And they kind of do in a fuller form what I'm doing today. What is marriage? Why is it that? Lots of good practical stuff, a very good chat about singleness, very good stuff about finding or what it means to kind of move towards marriage if you're uh, looking, uh, if you're single and interested in getting married. If you're married here today, make a commitment that this year you will read this book. If you're not married here today, you should still make the same commitment because it will bless you too. We've got some copies that are actually available just out there in resources this morning. So get there before everyone else does. So let's start with the first question. What is marriage? And to answer that, we're going to go to one of the key discussions of marriage in the Bible, which is in Ephesians 5. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, to a bunch of churches in the first century, shortly after Jesus had gone back to be with God the Father. And the first half of Ephesians talks about what God has done. By sending his son and us being united by him and we trusting him, we become a Christian, what has happened? And then the second half is all about, well, if that's all happened, what do we now do in response? How do we live in response? And as part of that, he talks to different groups of people within the church, including husbands and wives. So let's read what he says from verse 22 in chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul is giving instructions to wives first and then to husbands on the different roles that they are to live out of in marriage and why they are to do that. And in the process of doing this, he gives us a little insight and some understanding of what marriage actually is. But before I explain that, let me just kind of say this. What Paul is doing here is giving us a picture of God's beautiful plan for marriages, how marriages are meant to work, how God wants them to thrive and flourish. 
Because we live in an imperfect world. We're imperfect people, what the Bible calls we're kind of fallen, we're broken because of the effects of sin. So I know that all around the room there'll be various different experiences of marriage. I know that for some people today, looking at God's beautiful plan for marriage will be a really painful thing. Maybe because of past experiences, maybe present experiences, maybe uh, frustration that things haven't worked out as he wanted them to. And what we're doing today is not looking at this to condemn us or to shame us. We're looking at this to see the beauty of God's plan. And as we do so, I'm just praying and trusting that God's going to bring comfort where there needs to be comfort, encouragement where there needs to be encouragement, hope where there needs to be hope, empowerment where we need some power to live out God's vision. So just as we work through this, just let God be ministering to your heart, speaking to your heart, working with you wherever you're at to bless you today. Paul commands husbands to love their wives. He says that's their role, that's what they have to do. We might think, well, that's kind of obvious. Obviously, husbands are meant to love their wives. But the really important thing to notice is Paul isn't here describing what happens. He's commanding what must happen. This is a command. It's an instruction to husbands to love their wives. It's something they have to do. And the idea of commanding love might seem quite odd to us. We think, well, how can you command a feeling? We're not in control of how we feel internally. How can you command someone to live that out? And that's actually the bit that gets us to the very heart of what marriage really is. You see, in our culture, our world, we think of love as a feeling, as an emotion, something that's internal within us. Sometimes we feel it, and sometimes we don't. And therefore, the idea of commanding someone to love kind of doesn't make sense to us. It would be like walking up to someone and saying, be hungry or be happy. They're not the kind of things we have instant control of in that way. And yet Paul commands that husbands love their wives which implies that he's not thinking of our modern kind of emotional idea of love in the first instance. He must be talking about something radically different. He's talking about biblical love. And in the Bible, the supreme nature of love, the key nature of love, is that love is more about action than it is about emotion. It's about what you do rather than what you feel. And what you feel isn't unimportant, and we'll get to that. We'll see that in marriage, feeling is incredibly important, but actually biblical love starts with a choice to take action. And we see that, of course, most clearly in Jesus. In Jesus' teaching about love, and in Jesus' exampling how he loves us, we see that key to love is love in action. You see this in John's Gospel, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed... So the day before he'll be crucified on a Roman cross for our sins, he speaks to his disciples, he teaches them about love. He says to them in John 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, notice it's a command. This is a command to love. And he goes on to explain what that love looks like. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says the truest, greatest form of love is shown in a choice to sacrifice oneself. It is a laying down of one's own self for someone else. To truly love someone is to preference them, is to put them first, is to seek their happiness above your own happiness. And of course, Jesus is the supreme example of that. He says, love each other as I have loved you. He's just washed their feet, which in that time is kind of the work of a slave. He knows that the very next day, he will be executed on a Roman cross for them. He will take upon himself all the punishment for their sins. He enacted his love in action. And he says to them, you now 
are to love each other in the same way that I have loved you. His deliberate choice to lay down his life to preference us, that action was his way of showing his love for us. So to love in biblical terms is to lay down our own wants and preferences, our own desires, to sacrifice ourselves for the other person. It's love in action. Which means that when Paul says, husbands, you are to love your wives, he means that husbands are to act to their wives as Christ has acted to us as the church, which, of course, is exactly what he says. He says they love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And marriage is about this uh, relationship of love, this love in action. It is a commitment, a promise to actively choose to love someone until you are separated by death. You do it for the rest of your life. That's why if we understand love as a feeling, it doesn't work. If you understand love just as this sense of feeling, you can't promise you'll still love someone in 5, 15, 30, 50 years' time. There's no stability. There's no security in that. But when actually love is about promising, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to preference you. I'm going to do everything I can to help you flourish, laying down what I want for what you want. That's something you can promise to do for the rest of your life. Promise you will do with someone until you are separated by death. And that's why, biblically, marriage is about promises. It's what the Bible calls a covenant. This binding agreement between two people where there are promises involved. That's why the marriage ceremony itself is a set of promises. In a marriage ceremony, the groom and the bride promise to love each other and care for each other no matter what happens. However life goes, whatever situations happen, whatever sickness and health, whatever happens, they commit to loving each other. At a wedding ceremony, people don't come along and say, well, at the moment, I feel these really strong feelings for you, and I think they're going to continue, so as long as they do, I'm committing to you, but actually, if they wane, I'm going to give up. That's not what you say in a wedding. You say, no matter what happens, I am going to love you and commit to you, forsaking all others until separated by death. And so those wedding vows, those promises, that covenant agreement between two people, is what sustains the marriage. Feelings of love can't sustain a marriage. Feelings will come and will go. There'll be mornings you wake up and you don't feel quite as good as you did on your wedding day. But actually those promises have the power to sustain. They give the stability to work through a marriage. The promises are, are kind of like the scaffolding or like a steel frame. They are the solid, secure thing that won't move, that is there to hold it in place. And within that context, you have the position to work on the feelings of love. You have the stability to work through the difficulties which will inevitably come. And it's important that that stability is there, and that's the context in which you work on the feelings of love. Because feelings are unimportant in marriage. Don't mishear what I'm saying. Don't mishear what the Bible is saying. If you want to see how important feeling and emotion is in the biblical picture of marriage, go to the Old Testament and read the Song of Solomon. It's this incredible, beautiful, sometimes quite graphic love song between a husband and a wife. It shows us the deep emotion that's meant to be experienced and expressed in marriage. But you can't build a marriage on that. That has to flow out of the actions you take. Feelings follow from action. The emotion of love, the feeling of loving a marriage, flows from and grows from, is sustained by the promise to actively love one another. Because the reality is, if you act as if you love someone, if you choose to act that way, to take those steps, you will grow in feelings of love for them. 
Kind of counterintuitive for us, but that's actually the way it works. Which means the best way, actually, to growing feelings of love for someone is not to try and get them to meet your needs. It's actually to focus on meeting their needs. And as you do that, feelings of love grow inside of you. The emotion, in a sense, catches up with the action. It follows on from the action. That's the idea of how marriage is meant to work. And this is also where sex fits in. This is why sex is important in marriage. It's why God reserves and gives sex as a gift to married couples. Sex is something God has designed to unite two people. It's far more than a physical thing. The Bible says that sexual activity makes two people one flesh. There is a deep connection, a deep union that is formed through sexual activity. And that's meant to be in this context of committing to love each other. It's one of the actions you take which helps foster the feelings, the emotions of love and sustaining the love within a marriage context. That's why the Bible commands married couples to keep on having sex. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, married couples should be having sex. You should be seeking to meet the needs of your partner. He says, sometimes you might have a period where you don't because you're devoting yourselves to prayer. But actually, he says, generally speaking, sex is a really important part of married life. And it's why sex is reserved for marriage. It's not just biology. It's not just fun. It's creating a deep, deep union. And to create that deep union with someone with whom you have not mutually promised to love each other for the rest of your days is really dangerous. It's unsafe. The marriage covenant, those promises, those commitments are the safe place in which for that deep union to be formed. So these instructions Paul is giving, first to wives, then to husbands, they're about different roles that are played out in the marriage. But they're all about basically the different way that that love in action is worked out. It's not that husbands love and wives don't. They're different expressions of that underlying principle. For husbands, Paul says, this love in action is worked out by leading as a servant-hearted leader, a guy who lays down his life for the sake of his wife. Actually, the call on a husband is to lead, and the reason for your leading or the way you lead is focused on the flourishing of the ones who are following. It's focusing on the flourishing of your wife. And that means, by the way, that for the Bible to call wives to submit is not dishonoring to women. Actually, it's pretty much the most honoring thing God could say. God says, husbands, you are to lay down your life in order that your wife might flourish. You are to lead your family unit so everything works out for the best of your wife. That is hugely, hugely honoring to wives. And that should make submission easy and joyful and willing and cause wives to flourish. And so for wives, Paul says, actually their role, their expression of this love in action is in submission, to, submitting to that leadership of their husband, of gladly, joyfully following his lead as he seeks to do everything he can to cause you to flourish. And we kind of really object to the idea of submission. It's a word which in our culture we just don't like. We don't have any ideas of constraints and authority. But we misunderstand submission. Submission doesn't mean being a pushover. It doesn't mean never being involved in decisions and not getting to having an opinion. It doesn't mean not having a role. Submission means I'm trusting that my husband is doing everything he can to lead us in the best way for me, and therefore I'm willingly going to lay down my wants to follow him because I know that he's thinking of my best interests. Submission should be life-giving 
in a marriage which is modelled on what God calls us to do. And so on both sides, marriage is about this commitment to love. What is marriage? It's a commitment to actively love someone and for the rest of your years, your days together. That means it isn't actually the Disney kind of happily ever after, uh, soulmate finding kind of thing. It's far, far more than that. That can never last. It won't work. Those feelings won't be the static, steady thing on which to build a marriage. You need the promises which keep you secure in order then to foster the feelings, in order, in a sense, to cultivate day after day your happily ever after. And it means marriage is not just a piece of paper. It's not just a a legal formality. Being married is fundamentally different from just living together. If you just live together, you can love each other, feel great things for each other. You can actively choose to take steps to love in action, but there's nothing to keep that going. There's no stability, there's no security. When things get tough, if you're just living together, there is nothing to hold you accountable to keep on loving your spouse or your partner. When you're married, you're accountable to the community. Because you stood up in front of a group of people and said, for the rest of our lives, I will love you. You're accountable to God because you said before God, for the rest of my life, I will actively love this person. Only marriage gives the security and stability that can truly sustain a relationship for the rest of your lives together. And what's really interesting, and maybe unsurprising, is that studies have shown that this view of marriage actually works. This commitment that no matter what, we're together and we're going to take action to love each other sustains a relationship. So one of the studies I read this week was from an American think tank who are like a group who provide policy or um, papers of research for government and for society, various things. They wrote a paper a number of years ago now called Does Divorce Make People Happy? Because the assumption is if you're in an unhappy marriage, then people think the obvious thing to do is to get divorced, and that's obviously going to solve the problem. Is that going to make you happy? But what their research showed is that's actually not true. It actually doesn't do the job. So they used data from an American study in the National Survey of Families and Households. They took a whole load of unhappy marriages, and they traced what happened over the next five years in those marriages. And here's what they found. They said, with the important exception of helping spouses escape violent marriages, for which the results were different, they found divorce typically failed to deliver the promised psychological benefits of adults. Five years later, unhappily married adults who divorced or separated were, on average, no happier, no less depressed, had no higher self-esteem, no greater sense of personal mastery, and showed increased alcohol use compared to unhappily married adults who stayed married. So five years later, the couples that got married, that got divorced, weren't actually any happier than those couples that stay married. They also found two-thirds of unhappy spouses who stuck with the marriage forged happy marriages down the road. That's just five years. In five years, two-thirds of people who said, this commitment is made. I said, we're going to work on this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. We've committed to love. Let's keep on loving. Within five years, two-thirds of those marriages actually said now they were experiencing a happy marriage. Marriage is this covenant commitment it works. The stability works. I'm not saying, don't miss him, I'm not saying this doesn't mean sometimes things will be very, very difficult. Some marriages will have incredible difficulties, but the covenant gives the security. They're, they're the place to work through those things, to keep on going. 
And this gives hope. However uh, dire our marriages might seem or feel to us, there's always hope because of the promises that have been made. God's plan for marriage works. And this is what marriage is. So that answers the first question I said we're going to ask. What is marriage? Is the commitment for life to actively love your spouse. But then we might ask the, the why question. Why is marriage that? We can kind of see some practical wisdom in it, fair game. But is there any more than that? Is there a deeper meaning, a deeper significance? And the Bible, when we ask it that question, gives us a clear yes. And again, we see this in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul has shown us that marriage is meant to be a picture, an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. With the husband taking on the role, as it were, of Christ in the relationship, the wife taking on the role of the church, so as we look into a marriage, we're seeing a faint glimmer of that Christ-church relationship. That's why Ephesians 5 roots the roles of husbands and wives in the example of Christ and the church. That's how Paul explains it. He says, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband follows the example of Christ. He says, Wives are to submit, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body. The wife follows the example, the role of the church. And in fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that the very reason that marriage exists, the very reason God ever created it, was to display to us something of that relationship between Christ and the church. He quotes at one point from Genesis 2.24, which is kind of the the, the epitome or the, the key statement about marriage in the early chapters of the Bible, when God first creates marriage, about a man leaving his father and mother, joining to his wife, then becoming one flesh. And then he says... This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. He says, here's marriage, and this refers to Christ and the church. And when he says it's a mystery, he doesn't mean this is something that's too complex for you to understand. He means this thing previously was concealed, but now it's being revealed. Previously, we didn't know this. We didn't understand this. We couldn't see it. But when Jesus comes, the light is shone on and we see that all along, all these marriages, they've been about Christ and they've been about the church. So human marriages are an illustration to us. They're a picture of a greater reality. The fact that one day we, as the bride of Christ, will be united to our groom, united to Christ, that we'll be united at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We can read about that in Revelation 19, near the end of the Bible. And even the fact that Jesus tells us, when he talks to the Sadducees, he tells us in that new creation, in eternity with God and perfection, there will be no human marriages. Because the picture will have given way to the greater reality. When a great building has been built, you no longer need the architect's model. You don't sit around looking at the model, you look at the great building. None of us will be longing to be married in the new creation because we will be experiencing the greater marriage, the greater reality to which every human marriage has always pointed. The picture will give way to the reality. And this is why marriage is so important for every single one of us. This is why for every one of us, single or married, marriage is a gift. Because in every marriage around us, even though everyone reflects it imperfectly and only partially, we see a little glimmer of God's heart for us. And we see a little insight 
into the security of the eternal relationship that we will enjoy with him. Marriage is a gift to every single one of us, from God to humanity. And this uh, understanding of why marriage is what it is, it's also really important for understanding some of the, in a sense, the broader parameters for marriage. In a sense, the more detailed answer to that question, what is marriage? When we look at the biblical teaching, we find that this understanding of marriage as the Christ-church relationship is the reason why the Bible says that marriage is between a man and a woman. It's the reason why the Bible teaches that same-sex marriages aren't legitimate marriages and kind of um, right ways of living life before God if we are a follower of Christ. Marriage reflects the Christ-church relationship, and Christ and the church are different. And so in the same way in marriage, the union of a woman and a man is meant to reflect the difference between Christ and the church. In Christ and the church, there's unity in difference. And with a man and woman in marriage, there is unity in difference. And a same-sex couple isn't able to reflect that same unity in difference. This is why the Bible says that same-sex sexual activity, just as it says for every sexual activity outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage, is sinful and isn't a legitimate way of living if we're seeking to be followers of Jesus. And I know that that raises for us so many questions. Well, what does that mean for people who are same-sex attracted, for people who are gay? What does that mean in terms of how life is lived out? Many of you know that's my own situation. I'm a guy who's attracted to guys, I'm same-sex attracted, or I'm gay, but I want to faithfully follow Jesus. And so it means for me, what actually the Bible's teaching means for every single person around the world, that the legitimate options for following Jesus are to be single and celibate, or to enter into an opposite-sex marriage. And in our culture, we hear the idea of being single and celibate, and we think you can't say that to people. You can't say that God forces people to be or leaves people in that situation. We believe it's a a terrible thing, a cruel thing, a damaging thing. But that's because we've not understood the Bible's teaching on singleness. And we've not lived it out. The Bible shows, and many of us through history can attest, that celibate singleness is a fulfilling and life-giving way of living life. It isn't the condemnation to loneliness and lovelessness that people think it is. And every one of us has a need for love, and God puts us as his people into family. So we get to experience love. And our culture tells us we need sex. That's not true. You don't need sex to be fulfilled in life. You do need love. But you can be single and receive love in your relationship with God and in the church family that God puts us into. This means that the Bible's teaching on sexuality and marriage is good news even for a gay guy like me. And if you want to explore that further, because we can't do it justice today, I'd encourage you to go and listen to a talk I did in a church in London back in September. And the link will come up behind me where I asked that question, is this really good news for people like me who are gay or who are same-sex attracted? And that gives me more time there to do it. You can find it on YouTube and Google on that link there. And let me also say, if this is something which for you is a real-life issue, maybe in your own life, maybe in the life of those you know and love around you, and all of this we're talking about today is difficult to hear, is stirring up stuff, please do come and talk to one of us at the end. Come and find one of the elders or one of the leadership team. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to hear your story. We'd love to hear what life is like for you. We'd love to pray with you and walk alongside you as you work through that. This understanding of marriage as the picture of the Christ-Church relationship also tells us one other thing about what marriage is. It tells us that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. 
with the emphasis on the one. And that might be something you think, well, that's not really important to think about, but actually it's. Increasingly in our society, that aspect of God's plan for sexuality is also being erased. There's increasing support for polygamy and polyamory in the world around us. So polyamory is a word we might not be so familiar with. Polyamory refers to sexual and romantic relationships between multiple people where everyone involved knows what's going on. So this isn't people going off and cheating or kind of, uh, having, committing adultery. It's people know what's going on and they agree to it. Sometimes one person will have multiple partners who uh, kind of aren't involved with each other, or sometimes it will be a relationship of three or of more people. Often it's a married couple who then add into their relationship a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And there's increasing support for that in our society. And polygamy refers to marriages of three or more people. Usually it's a man and multiple women. And there's not a great push for the legalization of that at the moment, but with the kind of increased support for polyamory, it's probably not far off that there will be uh, people arguing for the legalization of polygamy in our nation. In fact, last year, that same study I've talked about, 18 to 24-year-olds, one-third in this country said they think polygamy should be legal. They have no problem with it. In the US, 70% of 24 to 35-year-olds thought that consensual non-monogamy is okay. And you might think, well, okay, it's going on out in the world, but it's not a Christian issue. We don't need to think about it in the church. That's also not true. In the US, one study found that 24% of 20s and 30s who regularly attend church think that polyamory is okay. There are already Christian groups who are trying to use the Bible to defend polyamory. They're creating uh, resources and support groups for polyamorous Christians. And even actually a friend in this church told me that recently they were on a um, Christian dating app and they came across what appeared to be was a couple who were looking for a boyfriend or girlfriend to join them. Not a couple they knew, but a couple who were on a Christian dating app looking for a third person to join their relationship. This is already something we need to think about in churches in this nation. But you see, this Christian understanding of marriage rules out the possibility of polygamy or polyamory as appropriate ways to live life before God. The Christ-Church relationship is a pair. It is two together, and it is an exclusive relationship. Christ and the one man, one woman picture is meant to reflect that exclusivity between Christ and the church. Christ will not ever take another bride. He will always be faithful to us. He will always have us as his people. And we as the church are called to be faithful to Christ, not to go after other gods, not to give our love and devotion to other people or other things. He is to be our groom and he alone. And that means that polygamy and polyamory can't reflect the Christ-church relationship that human sexuality is designed to reflect. They are ruled out by the fact that church, uh, but the fact that marriage is about Christ and the church. So it's really important that we understand why the Bible says what it says about sexuality. We need to see what marriage really is and why it is that to understand the Bible's teaching and because it shows us the beauty. It shows us the beauty, the goodness of God's plan, of God's intention for us, that every marriage around us between a man and a woman, however imperfectly, is displaying to us something of God's heart for us, something of that relationship. Can the band come back up, please? So we've tackled two big questions. We've asked, what is marriage? 
I found it's this commitment between two people for the rest of their lives together to actively love one another and that they act, take actions such that feelings would follow on. And that promise, that context gives the security to live out that relationship. And we've asked why. Why is marriage that? It's that because in marriage we see the relationship between Christ and the church This is God's beautiful gift to us, God's beautiful plan for human sexuality. And the way we respond to this today will vary hugely across all of us, based on our different life situations, based on different variations within similar life situations. If you're married here today, you may actually need to take some time this week to talk over this. Is this how we view marriage? Is this how we're living out our marriage? You might want to get the Life app, which will go online with the recording, and spend some time working through it. You might want to spend some time asking for the Holy Spirit to help you in this. God doesn't say, husbands, go to this, wives, do this, and try really hard. He comes and lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit. He empowers us to do this. Pray, ask him to do that. Today, the elders and the leadership team will be around at the end. If this is something you want to talk about, maybe this is stirred up various kind of things, and you think, I really want to be able to talk about this to have a chance to pray with someone, make sure you take that opportunity to do that. But let me give you three themes that I think might be helpful to us in responding. And just open your hearts now and think, okay, which of these, or maybe it's all of these, do I need to respond in? We don't need to respond today with repentance. Repentance is about turning away from wrong views and turning to walk in the right direction. You might today need to repent of having had a wrong view of marriage. You might need to repent to God. You might need to speak to your spouse as well. And repent by turning away and then committing to live in the right way. And so the second thing you might want to do in response today is to recommit. You might need to recommit yourself to God's plan for marriage and for human sexuality. That might be in your marriage, recommitting yourself to laying down your life for your wife or for willingly submitting to the leadership of your husband. It might be as a single person recommitting yourself to the goodness of God's plan for human sexuality. And all of us can respond with recognition. For every single one of us, there's a call on us to look at God's plan and to recognize in it the beauty, to see in it God's heart, to see in it the hope of eternity that we have in him, and to thank him and to worship him for that. Can I ask to stand let me pray for us, then we're going to sing a song just where we can, in our own hearts, in different ways, respond to this. Father God, we thank you so much for your gift of marriage. Thank you that it's a gift to every single one of us that you have given it to humanity as a picture of Christ and the church, an opportunity for us to experience or to see something of your heart for us, and the eternal security that we would enjoy with you. And we say, Lord, we hear your word today and we want to respond. And I pray for each one of us, would you work in our hearts, help us know how we respond to this, help us know how we put this into action. Come, I pray, comfort and encourage, kind of empower. Come do whatever we need, I pray. Help us to lay our all before you again, to willingly, gladly submit to you, and to enjoy living out the goodness of your gift to us, we pray. Come help us in Jesus' name. Amen.